0: I trust that that is your testimony here this morning as we find our great worth in Christ, as we have the testimony of our hardness against Him, and then He found us by His sovereign grace. He is keeping us, and He will complete that which He has begun in us. And how thankful we are for the work of Christ that we rest upon his merits and upon his goodness to us. A part of that whole narrative is that passage that we're looking at this morning, and we will in subsequent weeks as well, from Matthew 18, verse 15 through 20 is our passage today, nestled in a context of a whole chapter that is related to us relating to one another. Verses 1 through 14, we relate to each other as children and to be great in the kingdom, you must maintain the humility of a child in which we first came into the kingdom, and then we must, we must lovingly confront one another, as really God uses this as a means to preserve not only his church, but even to the saving of souls, if that doesn't confuse you, I think we had expounded some of that last week. This is a means of grace, and so not the grace itself. that's Well, we will then conclude this chapter in a number of weeks in the future on this great need for forgiveness. It all flows together in this passage. As we come now to our text beginning at verse 15 this morning, now hear the word of God. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, take with you one or two, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, Tell it to the church, but if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Our gracious Father, this is an important text and probably the most well-known of the passage in this chapter. And yet so seldomly lived out consistently in our Christian life and faith and in the practice of the church. Lord, we want to be faithful and consistent in the obedience of Christ, but we want to do it with understanding and the right knowledge and the right perspective and the right manner and the motive and all of that which is revealed in your Word. So square us up today with the truth. Run the plumb line right down through our spirit into our heart and square us up with this truth. And we pray your spirit would with great liberty be able to work in the hearts of hearts that are open and faithful and receptive to these things. So we ask that our hearts would not be hardened. There would not be anything here this morning that would hinder our our receptivity to your word. Lord, we ask that you would guide us in the coming days to put this to practice and that we could see the great fruit and the peaceable fruits of righteousness. And we ask that you would bless this time together this morning to the glory of the name of Christ who gave us this command. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Considering the church for a moment, You'll have in this particular text at the very end of it a reflection back on Matthew 16, of which we'll come to in a few weeks from now as we reflect upon the church. But considering the church, what, what is the church? When we think about membership, uh, we've had a baptism recently, we're going to have lots of baptisms in the upcoming months. Uh, we, we have our membership vows. That we not only have given it the membership, but we reaffirm these vows every Lord's Day around this table. We, when we think about the church, we enter into a body of people that are in union with Jesus Christ. We have responsibilities to God, to one another, that we must fulfill. It's part of our covenant obligations. We have duties. Each one of us that cannot be neglected. When God saved us, we become disciples of his son, Jesus Christ. That is what being a Christian is about, and we are in a body of people that are disciples, inseparable from him, our head. We are bought with a price, we are not our own, and we have an obligation to obey Christ. Two times Paul and one time Peter uses the phrase obedience to the gospel. When Christ leaves, he gives us a commission, which is at the end of this gospel that we read, that we are to go and baptize and make disciples, teaching them whatever and to be obedient to all the teachings of Christ. Which means that we ourselves have to be in that framework as well. Now, this obedience is not referring to a meritorious based salvation of works, but it's the fidelity to the covenant relationship into which we now come, which we now are living. It's a faithful life in following Christ. That's a disciple this faithfulness of ours and our life with Christ is not lived in isolation but in the context of God's family the church acts 2:42 says and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers when we think about the church as a body of baptized followers, disciples of Jesus Christ, that's what the church is. There was a, a little um, memory device given by a pastor that uh, is, I find helpful. That perhaps it all begins with an A. There are three things that the church is and does. Number one, it Regularly assembles. They all begin with an A. They regularly assemble in Christ's name to worship God. Number two, they are in agreement with what is taught. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. They're in agreement on the things of the gospel. And number three, they are those who are accountable to each other under scriptural leadership for the doctrine, the teaching, and their practice, what they believe and how they live. Assembly, agreement, and accountable. We not only live in a community with each other, we live in a certain kind of community. It's not the country club or the yacht club where we pay our dues and we join enjoy the benefits that we've paid for. That's not the kind of community or membership we've signed up for here. Rather, this is a committed assembly of people saved by God whose life is now committed to follow Christ, which means that we are committed one to another in that very objective. We have to dwell together. Against all those backgrounds and differences out of which we've come. The way we comb our hair and the way we brush our teeth and things that we kind of laugh at when a husband and wife gets together about which way they're going to hang the toilet paper on the roll. All those little things and those backgrounds come very, very insignificant, but they become a factor when we live in a community one with another. And so we genuinely have to love each other. We genuinely have to understand that Christ has saved that person who hangs the toilet paper the wrong way. It really becomes so laughable because the things that we often argue about are so insignificant and so small. And the way that we posture ourselves in these things has to be dealt with in a biblical way. So we have to dwell with each other in in charity and in love and a genuineness, understanding of the gospel has saved our brother just like it has saved us. And Christ is cleansing us and sanctifying them as he is us. And when we rely upon the gospel and thank God that we can turn in repentance to him to receive forgiveness once again for the sin I've committed this day, he does the same for the other person as well. We have to be committed to God's word. They have continued in the apostles' doctrine. And when someone is out of alignment with their beliefs on that apostles' doctrine, or when someone is out of alignment with their practice, which the teaching then instructs, they are to be held to an account. And everyone, no exceptions, has a part to play in this. This is not just the responsibility of your elders or your pastors or your deacons. Everybody has a responsibility. Last week we began looking at this passage in Matthew 18 verses 15 and we considered together what then justifies one person to go confront a brother and then we looked at three reasons why we are to do so. Three reasons why we would then go to a brother in which even the the matter may be escalated further. And the the reason that justifies you or me to go to another brother and to confront him boils down to a sin issue. It's not an emotional disagreement, it's not a matter of preference, it's a sin issue. Now, that sin issue can come about from a wrong behavior or even wrong beliefs. The wrong way of thinking about God is a, is a reason that you can go to somebody and confront them if they are deliberately and willfully thinking about it and him incorrectly. We looked at some of those examples, I think even five passages, and one of those was in First Thessalonians where we have someone that says, the resurrection has already passed, and Paul held them into an account to the place where they were creating divisions, and he says, you need to separate these people. He's turned over Homenaeus and Alexander, and, and he's, he's turned them over to Satan so that they would not blaspheme the name of God. And so the way that, that we consider this is it is disciplinable, confrontable for our beliefs as well as those aberrant behaviors. But there's three reasons that we looked at last Lord's Day that justify you to go and confront a brother where a situation may be escalated. Number one is you do that for the sake of the erring brother. And number two, you do that for the sake of the church and number three, you do that for the sake of Christ, for his name and for his testimony that his name would not be blasphemed. What you do not do is you do not do that primarily for your own personal sake. And This morning I want to address where the problem really begins and what the Bible would have us to do about it from verse 15. And I've entitled the message this morning, Healthy Private Conversations. We have to remember the broader context of this passage where uh, we are looking at this relationship that we have one another in the body of Christ. That even when one sheep goes and he strays, verse 12 I believe it was in the previous context, then we are to go after the one sheep. But where does this problem of straying From belief or practice, normally initiate. Where does the problem start? In almost every one of the cases, it starts with a breakdown of a relationship. When do you go confront a brother or a sister in Christ? And the answer is when that relationship is damaged, when it's broken. For the sake of that relationship between a brother and a sister in the Lord, you need to go and confront the other person. One of the most troublesome sins in the church is brothers and sisters dwelling at odds with one another and not reconciling with one another and living that way indefinitely in the church. And when two people Two individuals in the body of Christ are at odds with one another. It actually will grow to disturb the peace of the entire body. One of the characteristics of the kingdom's citizens given in the Beatitudes that are to be blessed are the peacemakers. In fact, Paul speaks about this a number of times even in that passage from Colossians that we reflected and that we are to be rooted in Christ and that we are to be at peace. And, and He says in Romans 12, If it is possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. As much as it is able, whatever you can do, live peaceably with all men. Romans 14 where he's expounding this chapter on living charitably with those in which we even disagree and with weaker conscience, brethren, he says, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. That's what the kingdom's about. He goes on in that same passage. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace, and the things wherewith one may edify another. And that's why in Hebrews, whoever the author is, there says in verse twelve, chapter twelve, fourteen, pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Peace is a reoccurring theme over and over and over. It's a fruit of the Spirit that we have peace with God, but peace with one another. And if we have peace with God, we must have peace with one another. And it, it just is one of those things that chaos is of the enemy and peace is of the Lord. So when a relationship in the church has been broken and there's no peace between those parties, that's what happened with two named women that Paul calls out by name, which we know their names 2,000 years later because for all of the hit church history, they've been preserved in the Holy Scriptures. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 4 to, it says, I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now why did he call out two individual ladies and exhort them in front of the entire church in this way, that when that epistle was going to be read at Philippi, everybody was going to hear it. It's because those two ladies who were at odds with one another, everybody knew it. And it had grown to such a place where even Paul knew it from afar, and that particular testimony that the church was propagating was unhealthy, it was divisive, and now the public matter has become so great, he has to call it in that particular context. See, relationships between Christians and the church must be maintained or else they become an internal cancer that affects the entire body. And this is what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, a little leaven in the body of Christ leavens the entire lump. Therefore, you have to remove the leaven. So, see, it begins with relationship. And you have to deal with those things and dealing with those issues and those relational challenges are not optional. They are commanded. This is part of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. There are stories and stories and stories of Christians dwelling in the same church who never talk to each other. Who come by, come in the door every Lord's Day, whatever church they're in, and they avoid each other. They never look at each other in the eye. They never speak to each other. They never greet each other, and in their spirit, they have been shunning each other sometimes for years and sometimes even into the decades. People who come to church to worship God and yet cannot look their brother in the eye because of some fault between them, people who come to church and intentionally avoid somebody else. And folks, you can't come to church to worship God when you know there's aught between you and a brother. We dealt with that back in Matthew 5. You are to go and first get right with your brother, then come and offer your gift at the altar. Sometimes you have to disrupt your worship in order to do that so it will be acceptable in the sight of God. This is not an optional practice in the church how do I know when to go to my brother? Do I go over every little offense? Absolutely not. That's all we would be doing. That's all we would be doing for the rest of our life. That is not what it means at all. No, that's why the scripture says love covers a multitude of transgressions. And you have, as a Christian, in your spirit and in the capacity in which God has saved you, the, the... The deposit in your own life of God's forgiveness that it will far surpass anything, anything that you are ever asked to forgive your neighbor. He has given you more love than you are ever asked to give your neighbor. He's given it to you. You you can draw out of that deposit... And you will never empty that deposit in how much forgiveness you give, how much love you give. Love covers a multitude of transgression. But he does know that you're weak. And he knows that you're not always going to be looking to the, to the cross. And there are times in which that relationship is broken, that it is broken because I do cannot overlook that, or you are strong, you can overlook it, and in your spirit you have forgiven that, and that's required of you no matter what. And hopefully it's more as though you are now, for the sake of that relationship, for the sake of that wayward brother, it's not a personal matter anymore, because you and your spirit have drawn off of the forgiveness of Christ, drawn off of the love of of God, and, and you in your spirit are now going for the sake of the brother, for the sake of the church, and for the sake of Christ's name. But if you, if you harbor bitterness in your heart, if you shun a person, if you retain any of that residual anger, if you can't... Just let something go and have the love cover that multitude of transgressions. If you, if you avoid them or you can't look them in the eye because of, of something that has gone on in your relationship and you have a tendency to want to go tell somebody else about it rather than the offender, then you are obligated to then go to the offender. Now you might not personally be offended at all. They may have done something against you that was sinful, but because of the action, and you're just emotionally neutral from this thing, but because of the manner of their sin that is endangering their own soul or endangering the church, you are obligated before God to go to that person for those very reasons. It is for Christ's sake that you go. So, you may have a situation where you are emotionally uh, tied into the situation and then you've got some bitterness going, and you just need to go get the air clear, and you need to go to your brother to do that. You don't let the sun go down upon your wrath, keep short accounts. We have to do this in our homes. But there are times when it's not a personal thing whatsoever, but something of a greater uh, cause that you are somewhat of a, an objective party in this matter, but you're still obligated to go if you know your brother has sinned and in order to bring account for the sake of the brother. As we read this morning, there is this aspect, do not let the sun go down upon your wrath against your brother Because if you do, you give place to the devil to open up a much larger problem, and it usually does. If you just cannot let the problem go, you've got to. It's not a suggestion. You must, God commands you, go to your brother. Now, when your relationship is broken with another and you can't let it go, you are commanded to go to your brother and confront him over that issue between the two of you. Again, this is not something that's suggested, this is something God commands, it's not something optional, and you must do this for Christ's sake, and for the church's sake, and for the sake of the offender. Now when you go to your brother, of which the relationship has been jeopardized, you tell him his fault. Says moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. You need to tell him what he's done. He might not know. You know, there's we we inadvertently sin all the time against our neighbor and we're just clueless. We don't know that we've done that. There are other times when people um, think that you have sinned and there's a misunderstanding. I was just reading a, a little uh, illustration that was a fictional illustration, I think, in J. Adams' book on on the Handbook of Church Discipline, where he he, he says that um, uh, there was two ladies in the church, and and one lady tried to engage the other lady, and the lady uh, uh, buffed her and gave her the stiff arm, and she went out with her nose up in the air and. The first lady calls out after her, and she's just racing out the door toward her car. And finally, the pursuer says, you know, you were avoiding me, and you offended me, and what is wrong? I don't know what the problem is. She goes, what? My nose was running in church, and I was so worried that it was going to drip on my dress. I didn't hear you at all, and so I was lifting my head up to get out to the car to get a Kleenex. (laughs) How many times do those kinds of things happen where there are misunderstandings and people get bent out of shape so quickly and easily because there is a misunderstanding of which was a malignment of truth, but now going humbly and meekly? you can get that thing squared away. Now let's say the lady didn't pursue her and get that all cleared up at the moment. Now you can imagine how much was going to brew over the days and over the week until the following Lord's Day and now this lady is going to be you know, against her and all the lady was doing was trying to get out to her car and wipe her nose. So you have to go to the person and tell them the fault Now, when you go to your offender, they need to make sure they understand what you are saying is the fault, which means that you have to understand what the fault is that you are now going to speak to the offender about. In other words, can you put that into words? Can you quantify the actual issue? Can you articulate it in such a way that the offender will understand? So that's one thing that you need to do. When you go to somebody who has offended you, you need to go and tell him his fault and make sure you're understanding and clear about it so they can be. The second way in which you need to go, that you need to think about when you go to tell the offender his fault, is you need to go meekly. Galatians one says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. The way you go is in a spirit of gentleness. The the word there is, is meekly, mildly. What that means is when you go to somebody who is overtaken with a trespass, you are now going to help the brother. You are to go not emotionally charged. Which means you're going to have to be prayed up especially if the offense and the trespass was against you. There's a third thing that I would encourage you to think about when you go to a brother and you tell him his fault, you need to have a clear objective in mind when you confront your brother. In other words, why are you going to your brother? What is your objective? Is your motive right and coupled very closely with that and something i want to put right here is and this is very very important when you go to confront a brother to tell him his fault and you've clarified it in your mind so that you can articulate and quantify it with understanding and you're going meekly and you're going with the right objective and your motive is clear. You need to go very clearly, now hear me, to know what will close this situation, what will bring it to closure. closure. What is it that you are seeking from the person that you're going to? What is it that you're wanting in return? If you go to your brother and he repents and asks for your forgiveness, that's it. Closure. No further discussion. That's it. That's the end of the story. Your work is complete. You have gained your brother. Your job is done. You've got to let it go. There are no further discussions about it. Closure. This is gospel. This is acknowledging that we all sin, but we have a mechanism. We have this method. It's the same method Jesus uses for us on the cross. You come to the cross. You repent of your sins and believe the gospel. And now we have this method among God's people that when we sin against them, we can go to them and seek their forgiveness before the face of God. And we seek God's forgiveness. And it's done. It's covered. The blood of Jesus covers us. And we as a brother are required to forgive them. And if we do not forgive them of their debt... Neither will God forgive you of yours. see. I've seen matters between brothers, where one goes to another and the offender repents, and that's for forgiveness, but the matter is not settled. I've seen where the offended is so unclear in their own mind of what he was hoping to achieve in the confrontation that it becomes a big mess because when the repentance is forgiveness is sought, it drags on and keeps on going. When repentance and forgiveness is asked, in a given situation drags on and it opens the door for new infractions and new sins and the deepening of relational chasms i am not speaking about one situation here i'm not speaking about two situations i see this on and on and on i've got numerous live examples of this very thing it doesn't close you know this very well in your own home husband and wife infraction, and all of a sudden the husband brings something up to the, the wife or the wife brings up something to the husband. Oh, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Yes, the next argument comes and they reflect back on Oh, but you remember when you did They're bringing it all back up again. Dragging us through the mud or us dragging them through the dirt. Because you never really close the matter before God. You never truly forgave and put it under the blood. When you confront a brother, you need to have clear in your mind what is going to close the situation. And the most clear thing that's going to close the situation is when they repent and they ask you to forgive them. And you say, yes, I forgive you. Boom! That's as clear as you can get. The gray areas come when they come to you and they say, you've sinned against me. What? And, and they disagree with you. And now all of a sudden it gets in a disagreement. And you're going to have to maybe walk away from an, a situation where you, you don't see eye to eye in this. And we're going to talk next week about some of the two and three uh, witnesses that are a privy to this so that we can have some clarity about this. But you're, you may just have to, in the love of God, in the love of Christ, just be settled that You guys don't see eye to eye. We're going to put it under the blood and we're going to move on in our relationship and we're going to love each other and we're not going to bring this back up or keep having this harbor in our own spirit against each other. And you may just have to come to that place. When you go, to begin with. Know what it is you hope to achieve before you confront the brother. Be clear in your own mind. It'll actually help you to be clear in your objective. It'll help you to understand how to go meekly. And it'll help you to know how to quantify, clarify, and communicate exactly what the problem is in your own spirit that brought you to to this confrontation. And when you know ahead of time What will settle the matter for you? It will help you and the offender. Are you looking for something that's beyond confession and repentance? Are you looking for vengeance... Are you looking for some kind of restitution due to you that you're not going to be quite settled until you're going to have that offender kind of work a penance out so that you can be satisfied that you've got the upper hand and you're coming out on top? In other words, are you, do you want the offender to continue to pay off a debt for which he's actually sought forgiveness for? Or is there some unquantifiable abstract that will never quite be satisfied because you're not even really sure what will satisfy? I cannot stress this point enough. Know your objectives and what it looks like to close the situation before you confront your brother. Now, when you have an issue brewing that needs to be addressed, the Bible says then when you have confessed or have gone and shown him his fault, you are to do that with you and him alone. You are to go to your brother privately. Privately. If you have exerted the energy to tell somebody else about the issue, but you have not told the offender about the issue, you are now guilty of gossip, perhaps even slander. That may even be worse than what you're accusing your offender of. If you feel compelled to express your discontent with another, then you need to go to the offender to express your discontent with the one who actually has something that he can do about it. Does that make sense? Is this just like easy? Right? This just makes sense. Why is it so hard? Because confrontation is so unpleasant. I can go and tell somebody else because the issue is not very difficult for me to do that. I can find a haven. I probably even find a little sympathy with somebody else when they first hear the first side of the story. Oh, yes, yes, yes. yes. And you get a little sympathy, but that does not honor God. Confrontation is unpleasant. None of us like to, to go and confront, but we're commanded to. This is, this is not the yacht club. Or I can go appeal to the president for somebody else over here parking their yacht in my space. This is not the country club. Or someone took my golf clubs in my golf cart. By the way, I have no idea what I'm talking about. (laughs) No, this is the church. And if we don't do this, we will eventually become a synagogue of Satan. That's how Jesus describes it. And when you go to someone, the Scripture commands you right here at this very spot, go privately between you and him alone. Between you and him alone. Go privately. That means you're not airing out your grievances with other people. It means you are not gossiping. You go to be reconciled to your brother. Now I want to give you three considerations when you go privately. Remember, first of all, this is not optional. It's commanded. You have to do this. Number two, you are to try not to get the pastor involved at this particular juncture unless the pastor is the offender that you are trying to be reconciled with. You're trying not to get the pastor involved at this point. There's a number of reasons for that, but the first reason is you go to that person and him alone. As soon as you get the pastor involved in it, all of a sudden it, it, it looks like and can be interpreted as you're all of a sudden jumping to the last step. It may not be your intention, but that's how it could be interpreted. Oh, church discipline. Remember, we are in an informal aspect of discipline here. This this is not formal. This is not official. We're not even in church discipline at this matter. This is personal relationships that God expects us to nurture and pursue peace with all people so much as is in you. So try not to get your pastor involved at this point. Number three, not all matters which you need to go confront a brother will be or should be even escalated further beyond that. There are going to be some things that you're going to go and speak to your brother about because you're concerned for him or perhaps maybe his attitude or, or something that is not right. But if you don't see eye to eye or there's disagreement, you're going to let the Holy Spirit just... Let that work in that person's heart and life, and you're just going to agree that y'all can walk in love together. So there's always that possibility that it just stops right there, and you're going to have to be content with it if it does. Now, when we're considering the privacy of confrontations, what the Lord is desirous of it is to confine the sin as well as the exposure of the sin and the exposure of the sinner to the smallest possible circle of acquaintances, and there are good reasons for that. Some people are just there sometimes there 's just a misunderstanding in fact there 's so many times it 's just a misunderstanding. in fact, or you may find yourself years after some problem that has occurred, years later, you come to the place that now you find out about the problem, and you knew that the leaders knew about it all along. Why didn't they just tell the whole church about that? (gasps) And there are reasons. There is an attempt to confine the knowledge to the smallest possible circle involved. Not in any way to sweep it under the carpet, but for reasons to prevent the exposure further than absolutely necessary and here are some reasons why you are to go privately and try to contain this number one it is never christ's intention to embarrass or to humiliate us have you ever noticed how the lord deals with you privately You know, it could be that whatever that sin is in your life or something you've struggled with, he he could have just exposed that a long time ago, but he hasn't done that. He keeps talking to you about it in the quietness of your heart and with your conscience. And why doesn't he just bring it up to your attention? And he just brings it up to your mind without exposing it and showing a big red flag. and Hey, everybody, look at this. Why does he not do that? Because his intent is not to embarrass you or humiliate you. His intent is corrective. It's not to damage you. And and so as Christ works this way in our own heart, gently, and as Romans says, it's the gentleness of Christ which leads us to repentance, so we are also to be one with another. We don't bring this up to embarrass them. We don't bring this up to humiliate them. We don't want to expose any sin further than it absolutely has to. Love covers a multitude of sins, and it even covers a multitude of things within dealing with a particular sin. Number two, another reason why we are to go privately, is to limit the damaging consequences And there can be a lot of damaging consequences when this thing is not done privately at first. Sometimes it can be very damaging to a person's family. There's a lot of fallout because it's being talked about. Or damage to the church as it became in Philippians And when people in the assembly do not deal with these kinds of things properly, it can divide the church. And people then get disillusioned. And then people get very disheartened with their own leaders and begin questioning their leadership. And then there's an unwillingness to pursue this to the extent necessary to get those involved if it has to be. And in some cases, you're dealing with with something that gets talked about and exposure given even out beyond the church, and it brings shame on the name of Christ, all when it should have been kept private. And folks, there's, there's people that are immature here. There's little kids that are getting caught up in the vortex of this kind of situation when it becomes inflamed and grows beyond what it should And people that are little kids and are little children that are immature in their own spirit or or there might be new believers who are here and are just uh, struggling to try to see the holiness of Christ and now all of a sudden a stumbling block gets put in their pursuit because something has been brought to their awareness that they did not need to know in the first place and it wasn't in the right context and they don't have the right information and they don't have all of the details, etc., etc., I don't know how many times I've dealt with problems in the church where sides are quickly drawn and no one had the full picture and both sides were equally wrong. Lots of damage. Lots of damage. I've had people counseling me from outside of our church, outside of our ministry, on a particular issue we were dealing with, who had absolutely no understanding of the one side and and was only getting the other side, and all of a sudden it was like throwing the whole baby out with the bathwater, and we were anathema, I was anathema, everything was wrong. I'm like, brother, you don't see the full picture. And I'm not sure how your response is actually pursuing the soul of the brother who's the offender. Right? See, you get caught up in this vortex today. You get caught up on it on the internet. You get caught up in circles that don't belong to you. You get caught up on things that, don't, that has nothing to do with you and you're not in the circle of knowledge and you draw conclusions and pretty soon you're right there with a the lynching crowd. And then someone really needs to come confront you about your sin this whole matter. We've had to do that before, by the way. I've got a Facebook account. I've got a Facebook account. You'll notice my Facebook account. Go look how many posts I post. I don't have a Facebook account because I can post things. I have a Facebook account because I want to know what our sheep are doing out there and what they're saying. And I had to get between two of our member sheep, neither one are members of our church anymore, but I had to get, they were having a big flat-out argument and contention on Facebook comments, going back and forth, Ah, members of our church, and I had to shut it down in order to get them to seek forgiveness with one another and stop airing this thing out in the midst of everybody's public and not only believers but unbelievers, bringing shame on the name of Christ, damaging the testimony of the church, not to mention themselves. So folks, we need to keep this thing as privately as we can. Privately provides less chance of it becoming a church problem rather than just a personal problem. If problems grow, it can bring damage to the name of Christ even with unbelievers. That's what Paul was addressing in 1 Corinthians 6. Brother, do not take this thing to court just... Defraud, be be willing to be defrauded of your brother. You can, as a church, can judge these things. But don't take it to court and air out all your dirty laundry before them. Shameful. When unbelievers get wind that there's division among God's people, oh boy, they're going to... That's like the monkey, the the, the devil's playground right there. The devil's playground. Pretty soon he's going to be in the jungle gym in your mind. He's going to be going around the merry-go-round where you can't get off, and he's going to be spinning that, you giving place to the devil in your own life and in your own heart. Now, a third reason we're to go privately is because it discourages false accusation. We'll look at this, Lord willing, next time but it discourages false accusation and the development of a a censorious, censoring spirit. It's an easy thing to make an anonymous phone call or send anonymous letters unsigned. It's an easy thing to do that. But it's quite another thing when you have to personally appear to the offender and put a face to the one that you're concerned about to support your basis and your concern factually, in his or her presence. And you have to be prepared to do that with two or three others. And you have to be prepared to do that in the presence of the whole church. See. Now there are some exceptions to not going privately at the very first of that and wisdom is needed here. I'm not going to be able to give you all of Let me just give you a sampling of where sometimes it may warrant where you do not go privately. And one of those is when, uh, when two children are involved, you may need to take a parent and go to a parent with those children and teach them, moms and dads, how to do this thing biblically. Teach them very early on. And you're just facilitating this conversation. But you tell them, don't go tell your friend. You go, and now we're going alone. And will you forgive? Yes, I'll forgive. Alright, that's it. That's it. It's closed. Alright, so there might be a case like that. There might be an exception when the offender is of the opposite gender. In that case, you might need to take a spouse of the same gender. You might need to go together as a couple, but you know, I'm not going to meet with a lady alone. So if you have aught against me, then maybe you bring a friend with you, or get my wife involved in that. And third, it could be a nature that's criminal in nature. And the issue needs to be dealt with by civil authorities. So there's going to have to be a situation where you might need to plead with someone to turn themselves in. And that we cannot just contain it in terms of a private matter at that standpoint. So there's going to be some exceptions. Wisdom is going to be needed in those kinds of exceptions. But the rule here, and what really Matthew is speaking of here, are those cases that are, are just regular family sins. And that's the majority of the cases anyway. And the point is, you cannot remain anonymous, and you yourself have to be involved in this. It's not optional. And the last thing I want to mention here before we close this message is that phrase, if he listens, you have gained your brother. You've won your brother. Now I want you right now to turn this whole thing around and think about it in terms of how you would respond so that your soul is the one that they are trying to gain. And there's a scriptural spirit about your reaction to someone that makes Their attempt and your approachability, right. So you have to remember the Psalms or the Proverbs, you know, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And Paul had to write the Corinthians and say, you know, you're acting like I'm your enemy. I'm not your enemy, I planted this church. You have ten thousand instructors of Christ, but you have not many fathers. I've been a father to you. I'm not your enemy. And Paul had to to address this with them because they were not receiving his correction. So turn it around. Think about now someone having to come to you, and how you're going to respond to that. And if you follow Proverbs nine eight, reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Now. So right now, you're going to give the benefit of the doubt. And you're going to have a scriptural spirit when someone comes to you. You know, it's an intense time. That person who is coming to you to confront you on this, for the, I'm telling you, that is not a pleasant thing. That person has probably been working himself up for days. He's probably been praying about it. He's in anguish. He does not want to do this, but he is under obligation to do it. And you just need to give the benefit of the doubt right now that their heart is in the right place, they're trying to do the right thing, and they're coming with the right motive, not as your judge, but as your friend. And you just need to be open. Even if there's a misunderstanding, you just need to be open. And you need to listen to the content of what they are saying and ask Is it right? Is that true? Could it be? Give them the benefit of the doubt for a moment. They might be saying it in an awkward way. Their tone might be a little off. But listen to the content of what they are saying. I've known people that are very introverted and they've worked themselves all up for this and they get there and and there's a little tension in their voice and, and yet they're not meaning it in a harmful way, but it's received in such a way that what is the content of the message has been discounted based upon the delivery and all of a sudden they're not hearing what they should be hearing. But what is being tested in my life, in your life, when someone comes to us is my humility and my love for correctability and respectability in what Christ has commanded us to do with each other. You know what? There are clearly times when you know that you need to go to a brother because you are the offender and you know that and you're harboring it. You might even need to disrupt the worship service. You might need to to get up before we come to the table and go seek somebody out and ask them for forgiveness before you come to the table. And you need to make sure you're practicing this daily. Now, if you'd done that last night, it might not be so difficult now. But that's where this whole constant process of its working in action in order to be the means of grace for your soul, for the sake of the church, and for the honor of Christ's name. And if we do this faithfully, heritage will stay right. We will be unified in peace. If we do not do this, we will lose the gospel here. There is no middle ground. This is gospel living. If we do not do this, we will cease being a real church somewhere down the line. This is why the reformers said that church discipline, which always begins in this informal, private way, is the mark of the true church this is why jesus confronted the churches of revelation warning them to deal with these issues this way so that if they do not he will come and remove their light from them altogether folks to be a faithful disciple in christ we are required to have this loving yet unpleasant private conversation before god with one another when it's required. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to be more faithful in this practice, to be more humble before our God and receiving correction. As the psalmist said, let the righteous smite me. It will be good for me. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be humble for correction and we would also love our neighbor to the extent that we would go to them in concern for their soul and for the sake of Christ's name and for His church to be faithful in obedience to the gospel that You've called us to. As we follow Christ, may we do it in love, never in vengeance, always with the right heart attitude, with the right spirit, in meekness, not emotionally charged. Lord, help us. Help us not to gossip. Help us not to be energetic in telling somebody else when we need to go and tell the offender. Lord, have mercy upon us and preserve us in the truth and the living epistles that you have called us to be as you have written your law upon our hearts and have changed us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. As we long for Him and long to be changed into that likeness, we pray we would not neglect nor recoil against the very means that You have in our own lives to bring us to that completeness and that sanctification. So Lord, we ask that You would bless this church as we grow in the knowledge and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.